0: All right, here we go. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, and again, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, I serve as the lead, lead pastor of the Springs. And first of all, check this out here. See this shirt here? If you're visiting, you turn a connections card at the connections table with our lovely Jessica back there. We have one of these bad boys as a gift for you. I mean, seriously, why not after visiting once to a church? just let us have your information so that we can use you for your beauty to advertise our church it's a good deal right and honestly we just want to do better to co- to communicate with y'all so anyway moving forward after the redundant announcement we're in week 5 of our launch series as we study through acts chapter 1 and acts chapter 2 now to catch you up with last week joshua preached and if you want to catch up with that message if you listen to it you can go to springstx.org it was awesome and Uh, Joshua said this, he said, God wants to bring new peace to you, new peace. He preached about Acts chapter two, the strange thing where all of these people from different cultures were gathered in one place, similar to how this room looks. And how can you have actual peace, functional peace with the gospel? It's because God wants to bring peace to your life around you by imputing peace within you that's the secret. And and he does that by intimately ministering to you right where you are. And he's going to continue to do that today. Just fair warning that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to minister to all of us, including more and more myself, very intimately today. So get ready. We are in week five of launch and I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet because we are in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 36 through 38 of Acts chapter 2. And to catch you up, this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon that he gives in response to an accusation that all the Galileans, his his group, all the Christians, were just a bunch of weird drunk people. And they were, the accusation came about because thousands of people had just experienced seeing something very strange that they didn't have a paradigm and a category for. It was the baptism with the Holy Spirit where God delivered on his promise and power was displayed through people. Tongues of fire, sounds like a mighty rushing wind. They didn't know what to do with it. But Peter stands up and he vindicates God's word, shows that everything that is happening is in fulfillment of all of the rest of the Bible and how it shows that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And he ends this sermon with these words, starting in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. God, my prayer this morning or this afternoon is, that beyond my words and my plans, that you would really enable a new progression, a new progression, God, that you would uh, about, the, that you would cut people to the heart as we saw, that the, the apostles here were cut are, and that you would release a new progression to grow in being the type of people that are repenting and being baptized and receiving with increased power the gift that your Holy Spirit gives. Amen. So as we unpack Acts chapter 2, and God is intimately ministering to our hearts, what I desire and have prayed for to happen and seen a lot in the first service, what I desire for you and for us can be summed up with you knowing and seeing demonstrated The freedom of this truth that unpacks this whole chapter. That the gospel makes you a work in progress. The gospel makes you a work in progress. Can you preach that to your neighbor real quick? Preach it with certainty and conviction. The gospel makes you a work in progress. Go ahead. Now you guys have to be a little bit more convicted in the first service. Come on, that's older people. The gospel makes you a work in progress. Now let's bring verse 38 up again. This talks a little bit about this progressive work. Peter said to them, "...repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." I believe that this is a progression of life that once you're cut to the heart and you're made new by God, you become a Christian. The rest of your life is growing in being a person who progresses in repenting, someone who's baptized and receives increased power in the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are launched out from being saved into this new progression in life. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other faith or religion or idea. You see, Christianity through the gospel, allows us to be launched out to grow and progress from salvation. Whereas the religious rat race of sorts, like I used to live before I knew God, and I still went to church, it's not progressing from salvation, it's trying to perform for salvation. There's a huge difference. If you have life that God gives you, everything else is a progression of repentance, And we're going to talk about how baptism factors into this and receiving with increased power the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to get to these three things in a minute, but first I have to establish what the gospel is and how it's worked into us before I can talk about how we work out this progression. And for this, I need you to know that I didn't say that the gospel is a work in progress. And I didn't say necessarily either that you're a work in progress. I said that the gospel makes you a work in progress. So you're only a work in progress once the gospel has been worked into you, firstly, by God. And then from that point on, the gospel makes you a work in progress. And so I want to clarify and and give foundation to what the gospel is and how God works it into us and how He grows us. Again, know that the gospel, the Gospel itself is not a work in progress. It's not something that needs my help with and that needs your help with. It's complete. It's final. Jesus said, and as he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He doesn't need my help and he doesn't need your help. It's final. There is a a level of certainty and finality that the gospel brings. And we should see. In fact, check this out. Verse 36. Peter says, let all the house of Israel, meaning, Let everyone here know this for certain. Everyone say, for certain. certain. See, I need your help preaching sometimes. Let everyone know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made. See, the gospel is all about what God has done, past tense. And there is present tense and future tense certainty about what God has past tense done in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And we need to have that clarity and that certainty and that finality in our hearts. And specifically too, it's final, it's certain what he's done in Jesus Christ. And we haven't helped with that And he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to clean ourselves up anymore to help in the work of what he's already completed. In fact, really, the only thing that you and I contribute to the gospel is the need for it. We contribute to the need for it. Specifically, you crucified Jesus. I crucified Jesus. We collectively crucified Jesus. That's what we've contributed to the gospel. Because the, the thing is, is human sin... In general, the whole system of human sin is something that in general has merited a certain judgment. That a just God has to look at what humans are doing to each other and, and brutalizing each other and, and people in, in positions of power doing evil things and, and us responding and reacting and, and causing more enmity and more strife and more lack of peace and mistrust and multiplying sin it's a general problem, but it's something that you have specifically, specifically contributed to, just like I have. And it merits, with a just God, it merits a certain particular bloody judgment of death. You crucified Jesus, and so did I. And that's the good news, that this particular judgment, Jesus has already died in our place. He has paid the particular penalty that he didn't earn But we earned, and he paid it in our place. That's the good news of the gospel. It's final. He hung on the cross, and it is finished. He doesn't need our help. He already paid for what we've contributed to the need for the gospel. It's done. It's final. It's past tense. And that's our present tense and future tense confidence is what he's done. In fact, we say it this way, our modern gospel creed as we uh, reduce, we deduce scriptures and interpret scriptures with this creed. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God and gaining the power to offer salvation to anyone who would repent and receive the good news. You hear all those past tense verbs in that creed? The gospel is what, about what God has done. Now, I, I say this hopefully redundantly. I hope I say this every week in church, but it's not just so that you can hear it a lot, and it's not even more that you can memorize it. I hope you memorize it, but I want you to know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, whom I crucified, both Lord and Savior, or Christ, and that you can have a finality and a certainty to it. In fact, let me take it a little deeper. Jesus has done all this work in the past. And that's why Peter in verse 36 could sum up all that he's already said by saying, therefore know for certain about what God has done. Well, in the heart of his message, if you go to about 14 verses before, he clarifies a lot of what Jesus has done. And it almost seems to take on the same type of progression and thinking as our creed does. It almost sounds like it's a creed that he's reciting. Starting with verse 22, the heart of his sermon, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, you've seen it, as you yourselves know. Meaning, in other words, he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we should have lived. God became man in Jesus, and he lived the life we should have lived. It sounds a lot like that. In fact, check out the next verse. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or you could say, he died the death that we should have died. Now check out the next verse, verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's an incorruptible life. And he rose again from the dead. It's like saying on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God and gaining the power to offer salvation to anyone who would repent and receive the good news. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. The gospel is the work of God alone for the glory of his mercy alone. He doesn't need our help. It's done. It's finished. It's all about what he has done. And check this out. He says this in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So the gospel is certain, but even how he applies it to you, is a work of God. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, what do we do? You see, I think this point where they are cut to the heart, specifically, God cut them to the heart. God applied this conviction to them by allowing and sending the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. And so, for us here today, you can know for certain That the gospel is true through what Jesus has done. But the operative question for you to receive it is this Have you been cut to the heart about all these things? Have Have you been cut to the heart? I've spent 12 years of ministry trying to minister to people into this new progression of life, of repentance and baptism and power in the Holy Spirit trying to minister to way too many people. I've made a lot of mistakes, but some of the biggest mistakes is trying to force myself and other people to listen to me when they're not really cut to the heart yet. And so I try to convince them, right? I try to convince them that they crucified Jesus just like I did. And you know what? I'm not very good at convincing, but I sure do sound angry when I try. I'm not really good at playing the part of the Holy Spirit and it's so fruitless when I do. If I would wait for the Holy Spirit to convict someone of sin and cut them to the heart, my time in helping someone grow in that thing that only he can do and I can't do, and even they can't do and you can't do, when God works what he's already finished to apply it to you, then you grow in being what he started in you. Then you work out what he's worked into you. But man, man, this doesn't happen without a sorrow that comes from God, otherwise known in 2 Corinthians as godly sorrow. But let me tell you the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, where you're cut to the heart, you're convicted of your sin, that you crucified Jesus. It's not just what you did, it's who you offended. And there is a relational grieving Not just a situational grieving of your sin. It's not just that you got caught. You know, like a guy who who starts uh, cheating on his wife and she finds the text messages or whatever. He's mad, he gets caught. But grieving in godly sorrow is you're mad and, and, and grieved about who you've offended. You crucified this perfect, mysteriously amazing one. And so did I. Only God can convict you like that and cut you to the heart. Let me illustrate the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. About two weeks ago, uh, my wife was getting home uh, from a thing she was doing in in about two hours, and I I was with all of my little kids, and I said, okay, kids, I took them all in front. I said... We're going to clean this house so it looks like it's never looked when mommy gets home. And she's going to be so happy. Do you love your mommy? Yeah. Do you want to make her happy? Yeah. Okay. You do this over here in this room. You do this. And so about 15 minutes later, I I go back and I see my seven-year-old, my oldest daughter, Hadassah. She's playing with her dolls instead of doing what I asked her to do. And I gently put my hand on her shoulder and she turns around and she just droops And she looks at me and says, Daddy, I'm so sorry. You told me to do this and I was playing with my dolls. What do I do? What do I do? Similar to how in this verse, brothers, what do we do? She had some sorrow that wasn't just, hey, I got caught. Oops. She she knew that this was for mommy and this wasn't just about her and rules. There was a relational element to her sorrow. Contrast that with me going to the next room. And I found my three-year-old Alma, and my four-year-old, my son Asa, fighting with swords. <laughs> Not real swords, but little kid swords. I opened the door, and they both had that, oh, shoot face, right? Like, I'm caught. And immediately, my son drops his sword, puts his hands on his bottom. No spank. And then my daughter, Alma, who's three, points her sword at Asa and says, Asa did it. Now, it's cute when they're three and four. But when you see that same disposition at 33 and 34, as it relates to the marriage that we could destroy and the God that we offend, the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is a real huge thing. Know for certain that God has made him who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what do we do? Now check this out, verse 38. There's a progression that's given. This is really important. In fact, before we get to verse 38, I want to harp on this for a second. Because so many of us, so many of us try to to convince ourselves that, that we can follow the rules without really having a moment where we allow God to just go to the depths of our heart. If you try to do things to perform for God, instead of allowing him to cut you to the heart and convict you and restore you and move on from God, it's fruitless. It's fruitless. So I'm going to ask you this. Have you been cut to the heart? Do you have godly sorrow? If you're not convicted of your sin, then me trying to convince you or you trying to convince you is fruitless. Are you convicted of your sin? But check this out. If you are convinced, if you are convicted of your particular sin, not just how uh, someone else has hurt you, your father has hurt you, or or whatever else that you might be in the situation, but you've contributed to crucifying Jesus. And if you're convicted of that, you're concerned about his holiness and your stance before him, and how you've related to him. If you're concerned of that, if you're all concerned, you need to know this. That's God doing a work in you to apply what he's already certainly paid for. And here's why you need to know that it's not you convicting you and making yourself feel bad or your conscience. It's the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because if you can have assurance that God, who certainly completed the gospel in Jesus has also certainly applied that to your heart, then no longer will your energies be spent on doubting whether or not you've received it and whether he's worked it into you. Now your energy will be spent in working out what he has worked into you and growing in the thing that he's put inside of you. And there is a huge difference because so many people are bound by doubting what God has done in their hearts and the enemy can bind you in doubting yourself And you think it's humility, but really it's just guilt and shame and unbelief. But if you can have assurance, look, God did this thing in me. That's why I'm concerned at all about my stance before God. Then your energy can grow into this new progression of growing and being his. Confident that you already are his, even though you're every bit as messed up as I am. So they're cut to the heart. I think, I think that's the moment where they're, where they're made his thousands of people at once, convicted by the Holy Spirit. And that's why they ask brothers, what should we do? In verse 38, this is where the new progression comes in. Are we ready for this? The new progression, Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that this is a progression of three commands. Even though in English it's rendered like two commands, repent and be baptized, and then one description, and then you will receive. Here's why I think it's three commands instead of two commands and a description. And it's real simple. It's because these three things are given in response to a question, what should we do? And so there's three things to grow in being what he, working out what he's already worked into you. It's repent, first. Second, be baptized. Third, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let's break this down one at a time real quick. First of all, repentance. What is repentance? You've heard probably before, you need to repent. Or you've maybe said to someone else, you need to repent. Well, what does that mean? What is repentance? Thank you for asking. Check this out. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, amazing book, uh, Paul David Tripp says this about repentance. He says, the Bible does defines repentance as a radical change of heart resulting in a radical change in the direction of one's life. You know, repentance is a work of God that he starts by cutting you to the heart, enabling you to see things differently and to change from the inside out. It starts at a certain point, but it ends the point where you see Jesus. So it's a lifestyle thing that you grow in. So look, if you're not dead, you need to repent. In fact, help me out here. Help me preach this. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not dead. You're not dead. Okay, I might, hopefully that's not a revelation. Hopefully that's not any new information. But turn back to your other neighbor and say, okay, you need to repent. Some of us married couples in here have been waiting for this moment to say that to <laughs> our spouse. You need to repent. See, look, The gospel makes you a work in progress. This is a step in progress that forever and ever until we see Jesus, it's a progress. We need to be repenting. Now check this out. Next, it says this. Repent in in response to the question, what do we do? It's repent and then be baptized. It literally just means be dipped or immersed in water. But then it says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins is the next thing. Baptism, water baptism. Now, this is the ESV version. In the most literal version, my favorite rendering of this is in the NASB. It literally says, be baptized in water for the remission of sins, which literally means just sending away. So check this out. You're always repenting. It's a progress in your life if you're a Christian. You're not always being baptized, right? You should repent when you're cut to the heart and then be baptized Okay, so I was baptized at like a month old. Were, I was dipped in water. But here's why I don't think it was baptism. It, it wasn't me being cut to the heart and repenting and then deciding to be baptized. So when I went back after repenting at 14, I went back after that and was baptized. That wasn't rebaptism. That was just baptism. But I, I don't need to do that anymore. But here's what baptism symbolizes that I still need to do. It's remission. Maybe I'm not baptized, but remission of sin is a progression in my life. And I like to borrow from the whole oncology use of this word. So with oncology, remission is used as a term that signifies a progressive release from the healing from cancer. And this can be helpful, although incomplete, as it relates to the gospel. Because in cutting us to the heart and enabling repentance, God works salvation into us all by himself, but, but then his ongoing sanctifying work in our life involves repentance and baptism and ongoing remission or sending away of our past and the cancerous things in our past that we've already been forgiven for, but that can have an effect on our present and future life if we don't grow in remission from those things and unto our future in Christ. You see, there's a progression progressive freedom from our past and unto our growth in Jesus, which only the gospel can enable. So look, no, no matter how dark your past is, you can grow in light of Jesus and his love for you. You can grow of, in light of his desire for you and you can be walking in remission. And so on a practical level, if you've been cut to the heart and haven't since followed up with being baptized in water, you need to do that. But look, if you have since been baptized, since being cut to the heart and been repenting, if you've been baptized in water, you still need to walk and grow in remission of sin in your past. Does that make sense? Repent, be baptized, and the third thing, the third imperative is receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, context-wise... They already had the Holy Spirit, but he says you need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We went over this a few weeks ago where we believe that if if you're cut to the heart, if you're made a new person, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. I believe that the Holy Spirit was inside of these people from the moment they were cut to the heart. It was a work of God making dead people alive. Why would he say receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, the word is possessive, meaning Receive the gift that the Holy Spirit gives. Okay, my wife is a gift giver. She likes to give gifts. If I were to say, I need to receive the gift gift of my wife, I'm literally saying the gift that my wife gives. Because look, I'm already one with her and she's already one with me. She's mine and I'm hers. But she's still a gift that keeps on giving, right? Man, I need to... We'll go with the second recording because my wife's not here. That sounded just right. Now check this out. The Holy Spirit is a gift that keeps on giving. He wants you to grow in more and more of who he is and the power he gives so that you can attest to the glory of Jesus with increasing measure. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives you who lives inside of you to grow in more so you will flow out from you, not be locked any longer in doubting that. It's a progressive thing that we grow in. But check this out. I think the biggest thing that prevents this progression for people that know Jesus. Now there's some people, again, like I said, they don't progress in these things because the gospel's never been worked into them. And they need to be convicted of sin and begin this progression. But in leading a church with precious people in it, I've seen so many people who don't grow in this progression, and there's various reasons for it. There can be pride, you know, thinking I've already progressed. There's all those things, but, you know, I think the underlying issue that I struggle with ultimately, I think, is the underlying issue that you struggle with, and most people do. The one thing that holds most of us back from growing and progressing and walking in repentance, remission of sin, and and increasing power of the Holy Spirit is a nasty S word that we all need to expose and crush. It's shame. It's, it's shame. This year in particular for me, 12th year of ministry, 8th year of this church, I've encountered various just honest personal struggles with my own attitudes and anxieties uh, and just relational weaknesses and leadership flaws. Just, it seems like a little bit more than normal. And I've been reminded very specifically in multiple ways that I still need to grow. And and it might, saying that assertion like that might seem easy. Like, oh yeah, of course the pastor still needs to grow. Well, it's easy to say that, but it's harder when I confront the shame of my particular sin being exposed around my family or other leaders in the church. It's a lot lot easier to say in general, oh, pastor still needs to grow than it is to deal with the express moments where that comes up. I'm still in progression. I'm still repenting. I'm still in remission of sin. I'm still growing unto the new man that God's making me into. And if only I wasn't so ashamed about it. If only I knew God's not ashamed that I still am a work in progress. And ultimately, you know, I'm not Pastor Peter to Jesus. I'm son. And so for you, if you're a Christian and you've received the gospel, you've been cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit, maybe you're being cut to the heart, maybe for the first time now, in relation to your particular sin, and and the Holy Spirit is, showing you what you've done to the perfect one like I have, and it's happened to you, you need to know you're still a work in progress. And you need to stop being ashamed of yourself in the process because that doesn't help you progress. In fact, check this out. This is one of my favorite verses. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. So my question to you is, is how, how is God disciplining you right now? What circumstances in your life is he using to stretch you and grow you to be way greater than you planned on being in your own comforts? How is God disciplining you? And how about this? Have you struggled to mistake his discipline for his dissatisfaction with you? Because check this out. Ironically, the presence of his discipline is the reason why you can know for certain that he's not against you. He's for you. It's the actual presence of him disciplining you. And so I'm going to say something that might initially catch you off guard and and be strange to hear in this context. But I hope you hear my heart in this. I think you need to give yourself a break. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying you need to let yourself off the hook and just not be concerned about anything I'm saying you need to give yourself a break. I'm not saying you don't need to repent of your sin. I'm saying you need, to be, you need to stop being ashamed that you do have to repent of your sin still, like I do. You need to give yourself a break in that regard. Unless you think that the shame the shame that thinks I, have, I should have already progressed already. Unless you think that that helps you to actually grow and progress in Jesus. Because don't be mistaken. Jesus is grieved by your sin and my sin. It's not like he's just like, ah, don't worry about it. Another broken home. No. He's grieved by our sin. But most specifically, he's grieved by our shame because that's what holds us and bonds us to shameful things. Are there areas of your life where you're listening to the voice of your accuser, who is the devil, with a a greater regard than you're listening to the tender voice of compassion of the Father that says, I love you right where you are. I'm not gonna let you stay there. And, And maybe you think that beating yourself down is kind of helping you, but really you're just playing into the hands of your enemy. And if so, you might be hard on yourself, but it's not for your good. And, and so in that regard, you need to give yourself a break. And I'm not saying you need to give yourself license to keep on sinning. I'm saying you need to give yourself license to grow in the grace of God, to grow in the progress that only he enables when you're able to surrender your shame to him and say that he has already taken it. The Bible says that he endured the cross, scorning the shame. He already took the shame and told that thing where to go. And you're welcoming welcoming shame way too close to yourself. He's already condemned it. And he's not condemning you He's condemning your shame so that he can convict you and draw you closer. Now, the thing, though, is, is condemnation and conviction often feel the same. Well, you know, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is good, that cuts us to the heart, versus the condemnation of the devil, they sometimes feel the same, or at least we mistake them for one another. And let me, let me hopefully make it really, really simple for you. Because both sound similar. Both tell you you're a sinner and specifically point out what sin specifically is being exposed. But what's the difference between condemnation and conviction? Conviction draws you nearer. Holy Spirit says, I see that thing that's not going to be good for you. Bring that to me. Come here. Come draw near to Jesus. Bring that here. Come here. Come here. Let's work this out. That's the Holy Spirit. It draws you. He draws you nearer to Jesus through the conviction. Now, now the, the condemnation says this. I see that thing. You see it. It's exposed. That's so dirty. Don't bring that dirtiness near to Jesus. You shouldn't go to church today. And you should definitely not go to growth group and confess your sin and pray for one another that you might be healed. Like James 5.13 says, no, no, no. You're dirty And stay away from Jesus. Well, is the voice telling you draw near to Jesus or draw further away from Jesus? You'll know it by its fruit, which progresses you, which grows you. As we draw to a close, I want to go in one particular direction. And I realize that even though I have one thing I want to see happen, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't have some other things he wants to do too. So I want to say a few things first. Number one, if today's the first time where you've truly been cut to the heart and convicted about sin, uh, and maybe before you've, you've tried to, to follow the rules, but maybe today it's like God is for the first time exposing your heart, convicting you of sin. Well, you need to respond and you need to receive the gospel. And even as we're sitting here right now and you're looking at me and I'm talking to you, you can literally pray to God. God, make me new. Jesus, you died for me. I receive it. You can become new. He's convicting you. You can become a Christian. Uh, but my encouragement to you is, is you should walk that out with other people. Okay? Uh, walk it out with other people who are just as flawed as you and who need to grow and progress and repent and be baptized and receive power. Uh, number two, if, if you've... If you've already received that, but you haven't since been baptized, you need to be baptized. And again, I'm not going to call for hands. I'm just going to say, put the ball in your court and say, if you need to be baptized, let's do it. We can go down to the river today or next week or whatever. Um, You need to do that. But that said, I have one direction I want to end in as we pray. And that's, I want to kill shame in Jesus' name. Now, if you're here and this message is not just my thoughts that you're considering, but let's say this message is for you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. If, you're, if this message is messages specifically for you, I want you to help me by helping me know. Maybe there's specific things of shame that you've been bound by. A shame that you're in this place. A shame that you're still struggling with this thing. If that's you and the Holy Spirit saying, you need to receive prayer and healing right now. If that's you, this message is specifically for you. I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you to be so brave as to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all of these precious ones who are in here, who you love, and you want to kill their shame. And I also thank you specifically, too, for... uh, For these individuals who have raised their hands, and I pray that you would meet them right where they are, that you would whisper your tender voice into their ears. In Jesus' name, I silence the voice of the accuser. I cast out a spirit of shame. And Lord, I thank you that they will begin to hear your still small voice of conviction and love, of of saying, I've made you for more. I've made you for more than just for him or for her or for that. I pray that you would release a new progression of power. That no longer would these individuals, these precious ones, be isolated in shame in one place, left to the, the, the attacks of their own thoughts and the accusation of the enemy, but that we would process together from here on out. We would, c- c- we would confess sin to one another and pray for one another in our growth groups. I pray for new power in that regard. And Lord, I pray for an overwhelming power that there are people here that have been made... Uh, The living water has come for the first time. They've been made new. I'm praying for power so that the the, the wells of water become springs and they pour out on other people and draw others to yourself. Not with something to prove or perform, but with a joy to grow in. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you and inviting you to do a miraculous work for your glory. Amen.